The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Well, uh, the uh, it's a long day today. The the um, great news, Dublin Horse Show launched today. A fantastic event. And, uh, you know, we wish them well with weather, but it's going to be another fantastic event as part of our, the, the um, RDS hundreds of years old has made a massive contribution uh, in here do a bit of work on the show and then of course after the show I'm off to RTE for Brendan O'Connor's cutting edge after the 9 o'clock news on RTE 1 so tune in and have a watch Irish Central the website is reporting that Donald Trump's visit to Ireland will not take place he's just going to go to Scotland uh, I'm I'm appalled by this. It's got nothing to do with whether you agree with Trump or whether you don't agree. But any Tom, Dick and Harry who, who could produce a business that would employ jobs would get passports for himself and his family from a grateful government. He probably would get tens of millions in grants from a grateful government to set up a business. Trump came over here and the people of Clare have benefited by it. And we shoot them out off. All our loony liberals shoot them out off about a man who, whatever you think about him, could be the next president of the United States. And he's going to remember it. He is going to absolutely remember it. You can be sure. And what about when you go over to the White House on Patrick's Day, bearing bowls of shamrock? And you say, by the way, President Trump, um, we've got 25,000 people over here who are illegal immigrants. I wonder, could you give us a handout? You know what the kind of answer you're going to get. And this is the same loony liberals who welcomed Richard Nixon over here. Uh, no problem. They welcomed Ronald Reagan over here. No problem. Don't Don't forget that Nixon illegally bombed uh, parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, Nixon uh, had anybody who went to an Ivy League school was on a list for, for Nixon. Um, so why Trump? I just, I just think we're, it's typical. It's just so typical of us that we do this. And then I'm absolutely certain that Andy Kenny did nothing uh, to help this situation. The Taoiseach of this country should not enter into an argument about the politics of a possible uh, president of the USA, a man who is currently engaged in uh, an election. The loony left can do it all they want, but not the Taoiseach. I, I just think it's wrong. Fergal thinks that uh, Trump might just uh, lose thousands of jobs for Ireland because he is vindictive. He may well be. I tell you, if they did it to me and I could do something, I'd do it too. Timmy asked, does a person like Trump deserve pleasantries? Of course he does. Like this thing called manners and etiquette and all kinds of old-fashioned things which seem to be entirely lost on the Twitterati. Um 
The uh, Kenny thinks Kenny opened his mouth too soon. Uh, and when Kenny is gone, Trump will re-engage with somebody else. Um, and I think that's absolutely likely. I think uh, they're going to be politicians, and, and particularly if Trump gets elected, and, and his numbers are getting better, the more tragically, the more uh, Islamic attacks that there are will help his cause. And his numbers went up immediately after Orlando. And you can imagine why. Uh, Lenny Lovett says our principles are more important than kissing his backside. No, they're... Whose principle? Lenny Lovett's principles. What principle is involved? Just explain what principle is involved. Uh, the uh, the Irish media is shamelessly anti-Trump, says Owen Lyons. Well, they are, because the, the media are liberal left, so of course they are. And uh, uh, Trump may be in a position to do us a lot of harm or a lot of good, and I agree with Hook, says another uh, tweeter. And uh, the world will be a cold place to be an American if he gets elected, says John Casey. No, won't won't at all. People will still want to go there. People will fight might and main to get to America. People will fight might and main to get Americans uh, to bring jobs to their country. It won't make a slight bit of difference. You're a sniveling, self-serving coward, Hook, says Peter in Knock Lion. <laughs> <laughs> I have to repeat that, actually, because it's hard to believe somebody might actually text it. George, you are a snivelling, self-serving coward. Uh, Laura says, George, you lost your vocation. You should have been a politician. Actually, Laura, you never said true a word. I should have been. If only they paid a few quid more. Um, Hook, you're a fool. Trump is a racist and could start World War Three. <laughs> World War Three cannot ever happen again because even the greatest Egypts, with the possible exception of Iran and a few other places, realise that if they press the nuclear button, we all go up, you know. And Catherine Wexford says, stop kissing his backside. John Cork says, we're right on Trump. Uh, and Wallace and Limerick agrees. And... Uh, Paul was welcoming, was looking forward to welcoming Donald J. Trump to Ireland. Uh, and he wanted to goad the socialists with my Trump 2016 T-shirt. Listen, Paul, if you have a spare one in double XL, um, will you send it to me and I'll buy it off you? Yeah? And uh, Ender won't be able to get the shamrock into the White House to Trump. He would never make it over the wall and carry them at the same time, says a listener. Thank, thank you. You're just a pig. Uh, Trump is one of the most dangerous people in the world, says Sean Jolie. Now, this is really interesting. Sean and Jolie equates uh, Trump as worse than Vladimir Putin, uh, uh, is as worse than ISIS. Uh, there's about there's tons of things, and they're 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 suggesting that Trump is one of the most dangerous people in the world. You've lost your reason, George. It's okay to let bad people say outrageous, hate-inducing things because of jobs, uh, says Nikki. Um, I when you analyze it, what Trump says 
may not be acceptable. But it's not for us. Uh, you can't you can't put a cop at passport control at Shannon Airport and say, don't let anybody in who says uh, nasty things. You actually can't do that, you know. There is a thing called free speech. And he's actually absolutely entitled to say what he likes. Um, and uh, the, uh, a proven liar calling Trump a racist. I'm still laughing, says Eamon and Waterford. I won't ask you who you think the proven liar is. And uh, Evelyn and Galway says, great that Donald changed his mind. It was embarrassing to think that the lefty politicians think they represent the Irish people. And, and that is true, Evelyn. The lefties actually think they represent us. The, the loony left, the great liberal left, think they represent us and that their view counts uh, more than anything. Paul is going to send me a Trump 2016 double XL t-shirt. Uh, uh, the right hook, news talk, Marconi House, Dublin 2, Paul. And check in the post when you get it to me. All right. Um, what Stephen Leach say? You would kiss anybody's backside who you think is powerful. <laughs> uh, no, sorry. Pamela Anderson now, there, I might. And, and, and she's not powerful. Probably, that leads me very gently into porn. Um, and it's a very worrying aspect. A United Kingdom survey has found and that's probably similar to us, that a quarter of 11-year-olds have watched porn online, and by the age of 16, it means half of children have watched porn online. Well, you're, you're, uh, you're not surprised, are you? I mean, you think of somebody like me, uh, who was 11 in 1952. There wasn't porn available, but instead... You know, we got pictures of Hollywood stars in our chewing gum packets, and you know that was fantastic. Rhonda Fleming, or or whatever, did um, Dorothy Lamour. So it's natural for children. The problem with porn is that these children will think that what they see is sex and love, and they will not get that great understanding of the connection between sex and love, and. For a child to lose that and ultimately an adult to lose that uh, is awful. And and invariably, because, I mean, there are all sorts of porn sites, of course, but uh, the vast majority of the kids will be watching are where, in a sense, a woman is being used uh, as a sexual object. And how then can you, how then can you explain to them that it's different, that, you know, men actually do love women, that their father and mother uh, or their older brother or their older sister or whatever that they love. It's a tragedy of today, and it's one of the great tragedies of the Internet. And on balance, if you want me to say something, on balance, social media, the Internet and a whole pile of other things, we're worse off having them than they're better off. You can write, get two sheets of paper and write down all the positives about the internet and social media and write down all the negatives and I guarantee you negatives will outweigh the positives.
And uh, David Cameron is saying that a Brexit could mean checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Uh, the opposition, the Leave Party, are saying no, no, no. Cameron has cancelled his his uh, his meeting with the Taoiseach. I think the whole reason, the whole reason is um, he was meeting the Taoiseach today because he. Well, normally he would meet him at an event. So I, I agree he was at an event, but he was, was meeting Taoiseach. He's pulled out of it uh, because I think uh, Cameron is now a liability. And I think, you know, the two great liabilities, Enda and Cameron, are both basically being pulled out of the debate because people realise that they've got a major problem. The latest information is telling us now that leave Brexit is as much as eight points ahead. And I'll be in the BBC next Thursday and Friday. Um, I'm in a very difficult position. I'm double booked on the Thursday. I'd agreed to take Ingrid out to dinner and I announced today I was on Brexit. Uh, Ingrid is therefore in the leave camp, which is me leave, she stay. Uh, so I don't know how I'm going to win that battle. Anyway, Brexit next Thursday and Friday. I'm broadcasting the show from the BBC. We'll have tons of information for you. It should be good fun. All right, James Gary wants to know where, as a matter of interest, do I draw the line when it comes to a racist bigot? Do you have a moral backbone? You really are the ultimate conformist. Sometimes the quality of claptrap on this program is absolutely outstanding. Uh, I think I'm going to publish a book after retirement called Great Claptrap I Have Read. I think it'll be a bestseller. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I've something much more I'm appalled by because it's bad news. I'm joined by consultant medical oncologist at St. Vincent's in the Beacon Hospital, Ray McDermott. Dr. McDermott, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Now, as a a 40-cup-a-day man, pretty well since my teens, for you to announce to the waiting world that hot coffee uh, could have a link to cancer wasn't the best news I heard all day. Well, I, I don't think you need to worry too much, George. I think it'll be all right for another while. I think the main concern here is not so much what's in the what you're drinking; it's the temperature of what you're drinking is the concern. Um, basically, this is a, a group of scientists that have come together to look at uh, the effect of uh, the potential effect of hot drinks can have on causing cancer. That would include tea, coffee, any other drinks that that people might take. But basically what they found was there's there's no link between coffee per se and the development. Uh, yeah, but you see I I if coffee I if coffee is not piping hot, right? Uh, I can't drink it. All chefs will tell you that when making uh, tea or coffee, you bring the pot to the kettle, not the kettle to the pot. In other words, that you are getting uh, the maximum hot uh, water into the coffee or tea that you're making. Uh, but what I'm worried about with this, though, is this is a limited study, no? It is. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's the nature of these types of studies when they're trying to show a link between uh, whatever it is and, and cancer. It's, they're always relatively weak 
and the evidence here is is weak because it's a very difficult thing to show. So I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't be overly concerned. But I, the advice from the group was that you, if you're going to drink tea and coffee, go ahead, but not have it too hot. So I think you might be in trouble there, George. But uh, I think in general... What? I might be in trouble because I'm drinking hot coffee? You're drinking it too hot, yeah. No, but hold on a Dr. McDermott. Hold on a while. Dr. McDermott, you're a consultant medical oncologist, so I bow to your greater knowledge. But, like, if you think for a second that, like, I'm not going to drink boiling hot tea or coffee, uh, which is is sort of tongue scalding hot I mean genuinely I'm not I'm not being funny here or anything I mean that's okay. the way I've drunk coffee uh, and tea since I was 14 years of age so I'm the other side of the research. The World Health Organization didn't ring me up and say you're living proof that hot beverages don't make have any effect no, but of course, I mean, let's put it in context, George. Things like we're talking about esophageal cancer here, yes. only, and it's because the drink goes directly into the esophagus when you take it, and yeah. that's where the, the damage that it can cause to the cells there. But the risk of drinking hot tea or coffee will be much less than the risk of smoking or drinking too much. So I think that you know that has to be put in context. I think in general, you can continue to drink your drinks. I think for most people, if you wanted to do your best to try and prevent cancer, you wouldn't drink the very hot drinks. All but right. I think the risk is not that high. Okay, but Dr. McDermott, yes. if, if, like, every single day now on the newspaper, there's another connection with with cancer, uh, and it's either drink a glass of red wine a day and you won't get cancer, or drink a glass of red wine a day and you will get cancer. I mean, there not a day passes where there isn't some connection with something. No, and that's true. But I, I have to say, the only thing I will say in favour of this one, this is done by a group which is basically linked to the WHO. It's, it's, this isn't quackery. This is something that has, they've analysed all the evidence that's available throughout the world over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and they've put it together, and this is what they've come up with. Now, you know, the the link is not that strong, but it, it actually goes to South America, where they have a tendency to drink very hot drinks, and that's where they see the biggest effect. So there probably is something to it, but I wouldn't be alarmed. All by right. It. But uh, and my guest is Dr. Ray McDermott, consultant medical oncologist at St. Vincent the Beacon Hospital, who I wouldn't dream of accusing of quackery, Ray. <laughs> uh, but it, there is, I mean, it's a serious point. You, as an oncologist, you could put four people in a room um, for 10 years as a test study and have them all drinking hot coffee every single day, some would get cancer and some wouldn't. Isn't that right? And and the problem for you as an oncologist, you don't know why two did and why didn't. Two didn't. Isn't that really the problem Absolutely. for you? Absolutely. And I mean, there's so many other factors that could come into it. You know, they might have had a, uh, they might have been born with a genetic predisposition to cancer. They may be a smoker. They may be drinking. So, that's why these types of studies, you always have to take them with a pinch of salt. They're never straightforward, and you really have to have lots and lots of patience in them before you can make any sort of conclusion. I agree it's very confusing when you see these types of things being reported, and you, one day you're hearing, you know, chocolate is good for you, another day you're hearing chocolate can, you know, give you cancer. In fact, this of them all, this one is probably one of the better ones, but the, okay. but the outcome of it is still quite weak in that, any advice they're giving you is, with the major proviso, 
that they're only saying that the the evidence is not that strong. So well, yeah, but I mean the point to be fair, it, the, like ancient George, it's probably not going to make much difference to me at this point whether I continue mm. drinking it hot or not. But there there may well be people in their twenties or thirties who drink hot coffee or tea, and uh, it may not be the end of the world for them if if they waited a few minutes for it to cool down. And it might make no difference to their enjoyment of the beverage. So therefore, it does it does have a sense in that way, isn't that right? So I would advise, yeah, we, we may leave you out of it, George. You may you may probably be gone beyond that point. I agree, but for for a lot of the younger people, if it's probably better not to be ordering their drinks extra hot, which some people have a tendency to do. You know, let maybe try and let the drink cool for a few minutes before you take it. I think they would be. The bits of advice that probably if people were trying to be extra vigilant, they would be. The yeah, same. but of course, the, strangely enough, the baristas are on the same uh, page as the medical oncologists because baristas believe that coffee's actually better. Uh, when cooling, you know. Mm. So yeah. every barista always says to me, George, you're getting the worst coffee because you drink it so hot all the time. So in, in terms of the actual coffee and the flavor, you might actually be better off and be doing yourself a favor by letting it cool. But think about it, George. If you would, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't pour some of that coffee on your skin. Why would you put it into your into your <laughs> mouth? You know? so it can be very hot. You know. I mean, we we'll, we we'll let you off, George, as I say. But I think in general, the advice was let it cool for a few minutes. Yeah, on a famous, I I I don't do takeaway coffee anymore since in the car I dropped it on the most important part of my <laughs> body, and I, it's not a good idea. There you go. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Ray McDermott, consultant oncologist at St. Vincent's and the Beacon Hospitals. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by Jackie Collis Harvey, who's just written, I have to say, an extraordinary book. It's called Red a natural history of the redhead. Uh, Jackie Collis-Harvey, welcome to the programme. Very nice to be here. Now, in the review of the Sunday Times, it said, an entertaining romp through <laughs> the meaning and mythology of red hair. When you wrote this, and of course you are a redhead, I must immediately say. I am. Um, did you sort of intend it as a romp? Or why did you write it? I wrote it because being a redhead myself, people share their views and opinions on red hair with you all your life. And you become used to the idea that it is the thing about you that everybody remembers. And it's the thing very often that they judge your character by. And I wanted to explore why that was the case. So I found myself going right back into prehistory to work out where our attitudes today about red hair might have come from. So there is quite a lot of ground to cover in the book. I think romp is probably quite a good description of it. All right, but I mean, let's talk about you for just a second. Studied English at Cambridge University, history at the Court Hall Institute. You've you've had a career as a model and film extra. (laughs) Um, Yet the book, I disagree, in fact, with the Sunday Times. It's not a romp. A romp sort of indicates this is a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of a humorous run through the whole thing. I thought it was a fantastic piece of scholarship. 
Well, that's very kind of you, George. I must say, when I started doing this, I became aware immediately that there was so much nonsense written about redheads that I thought if I was going to do it, I was going to do it right. And I did find myself doing an enormous amount of research in order to be sure I'd got the facts straight. Now... Let's stay with redheads for a minute. It's quite interesting that you say it's what people remember you about. I, I recently um, had a look at my confirmation photograph from school. So I was about, I don't know, 10 or something. Uh-huh. And I remember the guy's name. I don't remember anything about him except he had red hair. And I hope I don't <laughs> offend <you> <laughs> him if he's still alive. But Charlie Lapthorne um, was in my class. And the, re- I can, the reason I remember his name so well, and I was able to pick him out of the 30 guys in the photograph instantly, was because he had red hair. And so, so that's interesting. But I, question one is, I think there's a big difference between red-headed men and red-headed women. That's maybe because I'm a man, of course. So a red-headed woman immediately sort of red signals, red for danger, red for hot. (laughs) Yes, you're so right, George. It's one of the things that makes it so interesting because it's so gendered and it's very unusual to have a stereotype like this where the women seem to get the better side of the deal. Red hair in women, it's seen as dangerous, yes, but in an attractive way. There's something compelling about it, something sexy and unusual and desirable, whereas for poor red Red-headed guys, up until very recently, it's been completely the opposite story. But, I mean, Maureen O'Hara, uh, yeah. Rita Hayward. Oh, uh, absolutely, yes. You know, so we're yes. talking about fabulous women who were red-haired and, and you know... Um, it's, and it, wore it like a flag, yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just... Yeah. When John Wayne first saw her uh, with the sheep and the quiet man oh, and he fell who from... could blame him? <laughs> it, was the, it was the red hair. But... Uh, but but John Wayne, who went bald at age about 20, John Wayne never thought of getting a red toupee. No, no, that that's right. That wouldn't have fitted in with the Duke's, you know... Uh, tough guy image. Well, that's right. And I think you've put your finger on something very interesting there, because the pale skin that so often goes along with red hair is something that here in the West we've been used to thinking of for centuries as being an attribute of female beauty. So if you're a guy with red hair, if you've got that pale skin, you're sending out this very sort of contradictory message. And there's this um, idea that paleness is linked with ill health. That's not good for men. You're all supposed to be macho and you know, sort of able to go out and, well, if you were John Wayne, pull a cart around with your bare hands. And it's, it, it's something that for men has always been seen as linked with these very undesirable characteristics of being you know, sort of weak or effeminate in some way or untrustworthy. Yeah, but it, the thing that's interesting, and, and my guest is Jackie Collis Harvey. The book uh, is uh, published by Alan and Unwin, but it's in paperback and it's read. A Natural History of the Redhead. Now, 
I, I forgot, of course, Lucene Ball. Yeah. There was another redhead. Yeah. And, Jessica and... Rabbit, George. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you, you shouldn't do this to an old man. <laughs> but but here's the interesting thing which I wanted to talk to you about in terms of your historical study. One of the things about royal families, whether British or Russian or whatever, you find that certain things run through those families. For mm. instance, with the Russian czars, you had that thing. Um, that blood disease, for Haemophilia, instance. Haemophilia, yes. Yeah, exactly, yes, exactly. Yes. Now, you had some really interesting redheads. I mean, Elizabeth I, she mm-hmm. was no beauty, but by heck, she was pretty proud of her red hair mm. because in every in every painting, there it is. Henry VIII, her father, mm-hmm. red-haired. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now I want to ask you about, suddenly... We've got a royal prince who's a redhead. So is that not going to change the view of redheads, at least in Britain, if not the rest of the world? I think it will. I think it is already. I think the uh, the position that redheaded men have been in for centuries is changing very, very rapidly. There's a sort of redhead moment going on currently. But where... I'm sorry, is, has the, is the royal prince part of this? Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. And, you know, he's, he's so famous and he's as famous for the fact that he's the redheaded prince as he is for being a prince. And he he also has such a an image as a man of action. It's, it's something which is happening with him, with the figures like Damien Lewis, with Ed Sheeran being so popular as a musician. I mean, there are now two red-headed actors in the running for the uh, to be the next James Bond. It's almost impossible to imagine that happening ten years ago, but here we are. Now, can we go back as I always do? Can we get back to hot women again? Can we? <laughs> Is it really true that red-headed women actually have a sort of different body makeup to to blonde or brunette or bl- we black do, girl? we do. All and what exactly do. is that? Well, we have a very peculiar internal chemistry. Uh And one of the ways in which it manifests itself is that we have a much more acid skin mantle than blondies or brownies. So any kind of scent on our skin is going to smell different to the way it smells on anyone else. Really? Yeah, yeah. It also means that our pheromones are giving out a very different message. And this is where, you know, the sort of the cultural associations and the scientific associations of red hair tie up in one of these absolutely fascinating little sort of knots of extraordinariness, where if you have the pale skin that goes with red hair, your system is much more efficient at synthesising vitamin D, especially under cloudy northern skies. And it may be that one of the messages that our pheromones give out as redheads is of this slightly boosted immune system that these slightly higher levels of vitamin D will give you. So it may be that completely unconsciously, redheads are carrying with them this this sort of scent message of good health, which is ironic considering how, you know, sort of pale skin is something we always link with illness, but it could be the complete opposite. But is it really true because of this change in your bodily chemistry? Anesthetics... Mm doesn't work quite as well on you as it does on me. Is yeah, that really that's, right? uh, that's absolutely true, yes. Any anaesthetist will tell you that if they have a red head being wheeled into the operating theatre, they will use at least 20% more anaesthetic on mm-hmm. them than if it was someone with blonde or brown hair. Now, the, the other thing I found, quite early in the book, in fact, was interesting, where you had this map, and, uh, and it was essentially a map of Europe, and, and you could track 
where redheads were and and uh, obviously Ireland is in it you see mm. we go north and west and so on but but you discovered there's a part of Russia yes uh, where there's a prevalence of redheads did yes you? there is there is there's a part of Russia a republic called Erdmertia and the Erdmerts who live there are supposed to be the descendants of one of the red-headed tribes that lived around the Black Sea many, many, many centuries ago and caused such problems to the Greeks and Romans when they were uh, encountered them in that part of the world. And I'm longing to go and visit. One of the things about red hair is because it relies on this double recessive gene. It tends to spread in populations that are that little bit separated, either culturally or geographically, from those around them. And I assume that must have been what happened in Edmertia, that it was kind of left to its own devices for long enough for the redhead gene to become fixed and very, very noticeable in the population. All right. But the thing is that you studied art history at the Courtauld Institute, and I'm colorblind. <laughs> so yeah, there's no way I'm going to spend my afternoons, I can tell you, at the Tate uh, looking at paintings, okay? They leave me absolutely cold. But your man Rubens, uh, I, I rather liked the women Rubens mm. like. I thought, mm. I thought we had a common kind of thing there. We liked our women sort of round. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, why did certain painters uh, paint redheads? With your studies of art history, did you come up with that or not? Well, I talk about this character in the book who I describe as man with a thing for redheads. And I think quite a lot of artists would have fallen into that category. But there is some very interesting uh, history going on here because it seems that we are hardwired to respond to red wherever we see it. It's why you see so many redheads in advertising and I think why redheads crop up in so many paintings because red immediately draws the eye. It's been suggested that it may have been the first colour that any of us ever learned to recognise when we were all still living up in the trees because it enabled us to tell ripe fruit from unripe. Ah, because, of course, I mean, right at the beginning, for instance, I mentioned fire engines and stuff. mm, I mean, red has always been uh, a colour which you associate with something, whereas, you know, you can take it or leave it blue or black or white or yellow, but but red, there's just something about it. Now, the other really interesting thing is you succeeded in getting a correlation between redheads and medieval anti-Semitism. Yes. How did you do that? Yes, yes. Well, unfortunately, I was just, you know, recording what had happened historically. As I said, red hair is likely to show up in any community which is that little bit divorced from those around it. And the Jewish community has always been endogamous. It's much more likely to marry within itself than without. And that means that there are a lot of Jewish redheads. Are there really? Yeah, I've never met a Jew. There are, there are. I remember um, on the ferry from Brooklyn to New York, there was this wonderful family of Jewish redheads, mum, dad, and these five little kids, like little dolls. And they all had the most amazing red hair. And it was sitting watching them and thinking, how did this come about? Why has this happened? That was one of the the sort of flashpoints in my imagination for starting to think about this as a book. So the, the thing is, what we do know... And it never occurred to me, funny enough, in in my seven and a bit decades on Earth, mm-hmm. I, I never felt any any problem with redheads, and it never just never crossed my mind. Do you know what I mean? 
And then in recent years, the younger people uh, talked about gingers and mm. so on. And for the first time, I actually heard people talk about people with red hair in a negative way. And mm. I was really surprised by that. Now, this connection you have, I, you, it may even go back further, and that's part of my question. How far back does this go? It does. It does. I talked about the tribes around the Black Sea. As yeah. far as the ancient Greeks and Romans were concerned, these tribes were the absolute epitome of everything that was barbaric and anti-civilization. And many of the tribes around the Black Sea, they or their children ended up as slaves in Greek households. Now, if you start looking at Greek theatre from all of those years ago, you find that nearly all of the slave characters have names that suggest they would have been played by actors wearing red wigs. Really? They're called Goldie or Fiery or Tawny or something right, like that. Okay, okay. And they're, you know, they're, they're the comic relief. They're presented as if they're ludicrous. So you've got three very bad stereotypes there immediately. You know, you're barbaric, you're clownish and not to be taken seriously, or you're snarled up in Europe's horrible history of anti-Semitism. All right. Well, um, the, 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 the female thing, though, it's interesting. It, this... this um, anti-feeling in in the 20 late 20th now 21st century women have have overcome that barrier uh, men not so easily. We have. I think it was probably never as much of a barrier for women. I think in the same way as being a red-headed man has been difficult for men for, you know, centuries, for red hair for women has always been somehow seen as unusual and therefore desirable. Well, sorry, Jackie. And my guest, by the way, is Jackie Collis Harvey. The book is red. A Natural History of the Redhead in paperback published by Alan and Unwin. It's a fabulous read. I must say I enjoyed <laughs> it enormously. But, but listen, um, the key thing about this, though, is all these redheads you and I were talking about, you know, like uh, Susan Hayward and, mm. and, and, and uh, of course, our own Maureen O'Hara and Lucille Ball and all these, there were certain things that we, that all those women appeared to have in common. They appeared to be, uh, perhaps not barbarian, but they certainly appeared to be tough. Mm-hmm. They appeared to be, if not Rubenesque, they certainly appeared to be curvy. Mm-hmm. Um and they appeared to like be tempestuous. Now, yes. I mean, if 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 you're going, if some fella says to you, "Look, I've got this really tough, curvy, tempestuous dame for a blind date," then you're on. But <laughs> but and, you know, I never knew. Is it? I never experienced it. Negative uh, views of, of male redheads until in recent years, I discovered it existed. Yes, it's uh, you know it is an issue. It's um, uh, certainly one of the the last uh, forms of prejudice and discrimination that people seem to be to to. to put forward without really realising that they're being, uh, how discriminatory they're being by using words like, you know, sort of ginger or carrot top or all of the other insults you get, particularly when you're a kid. You hope that when you're an adult that most people will have grown out of this. But, you know, I I don't think I know any redhead who wasn't teased to some degree or another for their hair. And sometimes it shades over into something much more serious and very unpleasant indeed. All right, well... The book, Red, 
The Natural History of the Redhead by my guest, uh, Jackie Collis-Harvey. Jackie, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, in the studio with me is my favourite paediatrician, Dr. Alf Nicholson, who's a consultant paediatrician at uh, Temple Street Children's Hospital and the Royal College of Surgeons, and author and PR consultant, Gronya uh, O'Malley, because the book from Gill uh, and Macmillan, 2499, 336 pages, packed with information of what to do when your child is sick. Folks, welcome to the programme. Delighted to be here, George. Now, actually, Alf, I'm going to offend you here because I'm not going to go to you as the font of all wisdom. <laughs> I'm actually going to go to Gronya. Gronya, you had to write this because Alf couldn't write, was it or what? <laughs> no, Alf writes very well. <laughs> no, what happened actually... What's the <laughs> idea of the collaboration <laughs> Okay, uh, yeah, Alf approached me some time ago and said he wanted to write a book, but it was a book for parents and he was very conscious that he wanted to have the parent perspective. And I was a parent, but I was also a writer. He said, would you collaborate with me on it? And at the time I thought, you know, I, I was a bit sceptical about it. And I said, well, look, I, we'll, we'll try a couple of sample chapters and see where it goes. And it just went and it went and got hooked. Now, the book itself, and I, because you're a PR consultant, I was wondering why you're having a role in that. The book itself is very attractive. I mean, it's it's a pretty thick book, which is a lot to cover, which Alf is going to tell me about. But it's kind of an attractive book. If you wore, if if you walked into a bookshop, your eye would be taken to it. Well, that that's down to actually Gill Books. They did a fantastic job. On, on, on it, The layout is very, very clear, very easy to use, and we're, we're thrilled. Yeah. Now, Alf, welcome, a paediatrician. Don't tell me. You always wanted to write a book, did you? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's a difficult thing to write a book for Tears. parents because yeah. if you're a professional, you've done all this training, you've done paediatrics or whatever area is your specialty and you have a technical knowledge of it, but maybe not the parent perspective. So I, I thought that was critical. And I think more now than ever, it's critical that we actually not just uh, inform parents, but empower them to do All more. right. What was the fellow I read when Michelle was born 43 years ago? And Dr. Every time, Spock. Yeah. Every time there was a problem, you went straight to Dr. Spock. You were terrified. Then young George arrived and I was a bit more casual. And then poor Alison arrived number two, three, and I didn't care anymore. And then, then, yeah. then was Penelope Leach. Yeah. That, that, that was the next one. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, but the point about this half is very important because... Like, there's an element, your child gets a temperature, and, and particularly, I'm not saying you aim this at, at first-time parents, but, but it's a boon for first-time parents, because the child gets a temperature, and suddenly it's meningitis. Yes. It's not actually something else like you. And, and, That's and where I, this works well. I, I, th- I think really, and I know you're a grandparent, I think what this book is trying to do is really bring an element of that common sense, uh, grandparent view of life in to the lives of young parents who are struggling sometimes with, you know, what is this? This Is it very serious? And who are resorting often to the internet or to Google for an answer. And then by the time they get the answer, they're even more worried and more concerned. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because not just parents, but everybody now looks up Google Mm -hmm. uh, to tell them what's wrong with them. You yes. know, and and what this book does brilliantly when your child is sick by my two guests, so I'll introduce you in a moment, but I'm talking to pa- paediatrician Alf Nicholson, is it, it's it's 
it's a key thing to be simple, but the information is there. Now, I'd just like to ask you about how you go about it. I mean, how did you go about chapter one to chapter two and so on? What, well, what well, was your I, kind I, of rationale? I, I think the, what I thought was most important was not to focus on rare conditions, uh, not to focus on things that were likely uh, to happen once in a blue moon, but to rather focus on the common conditions that I see all the time and that parents worry about. And if parents worry about a condition, I, I need to try and have the answers. And the idea of this book is to focus on the 20 common ailments and then to focus on the normal child. And then this second edition, we have a, even a chapter on pre-adolescence and adolescent health issues, which are very, really important as well. Now, that's to, interesting uh, that you decided in edition two to go to also to adolescent and pre-adolescent. Like, what's an adolescent? 11 or 12 or something? Well, it's a kind of a movable feast. Uh, I think that it starts at different stages for different people and yeah. you know, some people go early into adolescence and later, but it generally is from around about 11, 12 to 16, 17. But, but, but the thing about that area, like children are now, it's not really necessarily, I'm asking, it's not necessarily they've got temperature, but, but there's this issue about like the whole puberty issue and all that, presumably. Is that well, there's a lot of issues ar- around self-esteem and body yeah. image. Uh, there's a lot of issues around growth, uh, yeah. especially boys, you know, if they're much smaller than everybody else, they're not too happy and they get bullied or they may have difficulty in sports uh, but there's lots of other issues around uh, you know as becoming an adult uh, and and mental health issues are very important yeah. then depression can occur anxiety am I alright am I the same as everybody else and I, I think we explore that hopefully sensitively in that right. new chapter well, we're talking about sensitive approach. Grainne O'Malley, there's a help when you're the sort of co-author and, and um, part of the thing here is, though, because you're not a doctor, no, I presume, no. there's a kind of a plus to not being a doctor because people like Alf, you know, he, he's more likely to use the word with 16 characters <laughs> in it than eight. I mean, did you bring a more kind of down-to-earth way of presentation or not? Yeah. My my job, basically, I remember the very first meeting, yeah. Alf came in and toppled all these books on, on my desk and there were tomes of med- medical material, yeah. journals and articles he'd written and fantastic material. But my job was to try and say, OK, I'm the parent. And what does the yeah. parent want to know? What questions are they asking? And how do I... Not to talk down to parents because parents are very smart, they're very well read, but just to get parents' perspective correct and to, to see the kind of questions they're asking. I also had to try and see what parents were exposed to because, as Alf says... A lot of parents now are using the internet for their sources of information and a lot of it is very good. Some of it is maybe not quite so good. And we thought it was important to know what are parents reading? What are they sharing? What are they believing? And I, I'd, I'd be constantly throwing questions at Alf, like, you know, how about the potato method? How about, you know, chest clapping? How about cranberries? You know, and each time... Cranberries? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> well, for... for, for um, um, urinary symptoms and children. Urinary, urinary symptoms, exactly. Oh, yes, really? Yes, 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 yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 but my job is to, to say, okay, parents are talking about this, parents are sharing this on the internet. What's our view on it? But Alfred, in this book, um, When Your Child Is Sick by Gill Books, 24 Steel, um, the, the, the thing is that the the kind of pill culture, right? That you go to doctor, give me a pill doctor, give me a bottle doctor. But my our mothers, well my mothers like, you know, the mothers of the thirties and forties and fifties, 
they had a more simplistic approach to it because mm. they, were, they might be able to afford the doctor or the medication wasn't around. It's interesting that you mentioned grandparents, therefore. Modern mothers are going to grandmothers increasingly and saying, what do I do here? I think they are. Uh, I, I think, that, but often the grandparents, which who are quite very involved with the day-to-day living yeah. of young children, and there were many bigger families than perhaps now, uh, they had huge involvement. And, and again, parents do become less anxious with each child that they have sometimes. So that I think that the smaller families and maybe that degree of separation, at least geographical separation between the parents and the grandparents has made it a bit more challenging. And I think as what society has changed, we do expect a doctor to be sure as to what the diagnosis is. And of course, that can be difficult with young children, particularly infants. And we do expect, uh, you know, a immediate access to information. But but like uh, Liz and Rainey asked the question, when is my new grandson arriving? And uh, grand, uh, grandchild number eight is arriving on 12th of July. Now, interesting, it's the first grandchild that we know the sex of it, right? Because they, they wanted to decide what were they throwing out, you know, if a boy or girl were coming. But, but the interesting thing is that here is a mother now is expecting child number three. I made the point that my child number three could be dirt and I didn't care, kind of. Is there a different, like, in terms of your book here, and I'm not trying to pigeonhole it, but but parents, like everybody else, do get experienced. They do get experienced. And, of course, there's nothing, you can't learn to be a parent. You can't read it in a book. It's clearly all about an individual child and the whole situation. And a lot of it is, is learnt as you go. And But I think what the whole purpose of this book is to actually look at the the common things that you're almost certainly going to face in the first few years and right throughout into adolescence of your child and give you a common sense, medically backed up, up to date, uh, hopefully graphically appealing uh, understanding of it. And that will make you uh, a much better caregiver for that child, a much um, better grandparent. But uh, the, the finally, um, Cranio O'Malley, who, who was co-author, um, the point Alf makes is really good, isn't it? it? This book is graphically very appealing. And I think it has to be. If it resembles the Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah. you're not going to look at it. Absolutely Whereas there's a, there's a great sense of this, of kind of opening yeah. it sort of about something you want to what know. What we want was a book that parents can use uh, quickly, find the answers quickly, find the answers to their worst fears very quickly and know when to get help, but also know what they can do. Because most of the time they can do a hell of a lot themselves yeah. at home. I tell you, both of you have actually saved my butt. I'm famous in the Hook family for getting anniversaries, birthdays, everything, you know, and never get a present or anything. But I'm not going to tell them, but I'm giving uh, Tracy a present of uh, Know When Your Child Is Sick by uh, Alf Nicholson and Grainne O'Malley, and I'm going to tell her I bought this specially for you and our new grandchild. How about that? Fantastic. And they won't know it got it from you, Alf. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's great. It's Congratulations to you both. Eh? Dr. Spock is now redundant. Uh, it's now Dr. Nicholson. Groin O'Malley, author and PR consultant, of course, and uh, the brains behind the whole operation, if Groin doesn't mind me saying so, Dolph, Dr. Alf Nicholson, consultant pediatrician at Temple Street, and, of course, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons.